Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady, we're sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Today's topic is, should I be open about my mental illness? Um, one in five U.S. adults report that they suffer with some sort of mental illness, and an estimated 2.5% of U.S. adults experience bipolar disorder at some point in their lifetimes. 7.1% of U.S. adults are characterized as having major depression. And these are numbers that go back to 2019. And uh, in case you haven't heard, most of us had a kind of a rough year in 2020. We had uh, a combination of a once-in-a-century global pandemic. We had unprecedented massive social upheaval. And in some places in the country, we had murder hornets. And, um, you know, for a lot of us, it's been a rough ride, um, a lot rougher than usual. And most of us, I'm sure, have heard of many, have read and seen many stories of, of the mental toll that the pandemic has, has taken on many of us, ranging from, from job loss to being cooped up at home to having to take on home roles that we were not prepared for. For example, I am the world's lousiest Spanish teacher. Uh, for homeschooling our son, which was not necessarily our plan. Um, we can only hope we can order a Taco Bell, because I think that's the only thing I'm qualifying him to do, but he's 10, he might grow, it, grow out of it. And, um, you know, you think about mental illness, and, and you know, I th I'm, I'm hoping that kind of one good thing that comes out of the pandemic is, I hope it makes us more aware of mental illness and, and kind of gives it its due. You know, years ago, I served on the board of a nonprofit called Karen Counseling Center of Georgia, whose mission was to uh, provide mental health care services um, uh, to low-income folks, uh, and, and you know they, they did a, a really good job of it, in spite of my being on the board. But one of the things you learn about mental health and mental you really actually learn about two things. Number one is you know, mental health has has still it's still sort of been a backseat kind of taking a backseat to to so-called physical health. And, um, you know, you, you, you grow up and, and you talk about people who are either tough or they're not tough. And, um, some people of faith will claim that that makes them impervious to any kind of mental illness and, and, and so, and so forth, even to the point where, I, you know, it wasn't that long ago where I think a lot of people thought the mental illness was, was a choice. Um, you know, and, and, and secondly, I think, you know, people are understanding now that, that it, you know, not only is it, does it need to be destigmatized, but the thing on mental health is that if, if you aren't, 
if you don't have mental health and a lot of down of bad downstream things happen, right? They can happen at the micro level where it impacts your job, it impacts your personal relationships, it impacts your ability to be a, a fully engaged, um, fully actualized member of society, fully actualized person. And in very extreme cases, you know, particularly in the United States where, where gun ownership is plentiful, um, mental illness that is, un, that is either undiagnosed, untreated, unmonitored, um, simply not paid enough attention to, um, can have frankly catastrophic results. And, and, and I can't help but wonder, you know, how different might our world be if we didn't, if we treated, if we gave frankly mental illness its due. And I think now as we start, as we, you know, we're entering this, this trans pandemic phase where, you know, many of us are, are becoming vaccinated and we're starting to kind of wrestle with returning to work. We're wrestling with returning to restaurants, going back to baseball games and so forth. And, you know, the, the mental health issues aren't, aren't going away. In fact, you could argue that, that there are more mental health issues that are going to be created by sending people back to, uh, back to the office. And I think and I hope that one thing is abundantly clear that you know, mental health simply cannot be ignored anymore. It's, it's not the moral thing to do. And I would argue it's not the business correct thing to do. Because if you have, a, if you have a, even a small business of 25 people, statistically speaking, 5% of them, uh, sorry, five of those people are really struggling with a diagnosable or yeah, diagnosable uh, disorder. And, and one of them probably has something akin to bipolar disorder, and they've just done a very good job of hiding it, or we've done a very good job of not seeing it. And so therefore, I've, you know, I, I wanted to cover this topic. It's not an easy topic. I'm certainly not a physician. Um, but I, I think it's so important. I think we have to equip ourselves. We have to, you know, I, there, statistically speaking, again, there are thousands of listeners listening to this that, that are struggling with this question. And then for people like me, who at least I don't believe that I have a diagnosable mental illness, um, others may disagree, but I don't believe that I do. Um, but I, I do want to, I do want to make sure that every resource is available in, in my network and my company of which I'm a, a shareholder, that if there are folks, and again, statistically speaking, there are a number of people that are struggling with mental illness of some kind, that we as a company do the right thing, that we are compassionate, that we are accommodating and and that we um, we stand up for them, and and we don't abandon them. We don't try to force them into the shadows. And, and so I hope that that thesis makes sense to you as, as we kind of listen. Uh, you know, we kind of go through. I think what is a very a very challenging and necessary topic. And joining us today to help us talk about this is Jackie Chu. Jackie works at the intersection of storytelling, innovation, and business. And I've known her for a long time. In fact, I took over her office once. <laughs> Um, she deploys the power of narrative design and reframing an organization's brand story for resonance and to inspire action. Described as a Lara Croft of problem solving, Jackie is a seasoned business operator with a passion for building inclusive teams and working cross-functionally to bring disparate groups together towards a common goal. As the curator and licensee of TEDx Atlanta, Jackie is always on the lookout for change makers and innovations that are solving for the challenges of today and those just around the corner. Under her leadership, first of TEDx Peachtree from 2009 to 2018, and presently of TEDx Atlanta, Atlanta has grown in recognition within the global TEDx community as an innovation hub for technology, healthcare, and social impact initiatives. 
And I'm, I'm a big fan of TEDx. I watch one TEDx. I watch probably three to four TEDx videos a week. Um, and I've watched Jackie's video as well. And we'll refer to that in our conversation. Jackie is resourceful, tenacious, and well-networked in the Atlanta business, social impact, and technology communities. Jackie Chu, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Mike. So, um, Jackie, I, I brought you on because you've been, you know, you've you've chosen to put hold yourself out there as a person that has bipolar disorder and has figured out how to navigate life with that particular disorder. So. You know, I, I've read about bipolar disorder. Um, thank God I don't have it. I don't have a family member that has it. I have, I have a couple of friends that, that have. But explain to the audience in your kind of best terms, you know, how would you describe bipolar disorder to somebody? Gosh, uh, so first of all, I would call it a mood disorder because it, um, the symptoms manifest itself in extremes in, in mood. Um, in mood changes. And this isn't to be confused with a person who is moody, quote, quote, uh, but mood changes from the standpoint of severe depression um, to the point where uh, you, you would lose interest in what you normally enjoy, or you have a, a really severe depression episode would be if you are unable to sleep and you find yourself crying uncontrollably at, at absolutely nothing, um, severe fatigue. So th- these are very, you know, these are severe manifestations of depression. So there's, there's that aspect of it. Now at the worst, at the worst, um, in terms of depression, the worst manifestation of a symptom, uh, on the depression side is, um, suicide, lots of self-harm and in some cases self-harm. So that's that's that part of it. The the other side of the equation, or, or the other end of the pendulum, is mania, and uh, or ma- and manic episodes. So mania is generally characterized as uh, severe anger um, to the point of violence. So, um, for for instance, uh, this this individual that I that I know from uh, our support group sessions um has when he is in mania he specifically does not drive he, he actually specifically has stopped driving because um there are certain types of traffic situations that trigger his symptoms and cause him to act out uh and in in violence um other uh, other unexpected symptoms of mania is excessive shopping um, you know, uh, masking out in credit cards. Um, and then yet another is uh, hypersexuality, which can be really, really hard. Now, I'm not a doctor. Um, these, these are sort of observations and sharings over the years since, uh, gosh, I've been going to group, uh, support group uh, sessions since 2005. So over the years, these are some of the experiences that, you know, that my, my fellow attendees have shared with the group. And, um, and so these, these are some of the symptoms. So it can, it can manifest if, if, you know, it's generally two opposite extremes experienced by an individual. And each of those extremes, uh, could be experienced by the person for a couple hours 
couple of weeks. Um, I'll give you an example. There was a, I remember a point in time when I wasn't diagnosed, in which um, I, I remember staying up for three days uh, and going going through a complete cleaning of my house. Now, I, I did end up with a very clean condo, um, but, right. but, I, and, but I didn't realize at the time that I was going through, uh, I was experiencing mania uh, in that I, I wasn't able to sleep. I was hyperactive. There, there was just a lot of energy and I, I was probably a lot, well, not probably, I was testier and quicker to anger than normal. And, and this went on for a couple of weeks, uh, as I recall. Now, looking back after my diagnosis in 2005, I recognized through my therapy sessions that these, these moments in time of periods in my life that I had just dismissed as, you know, just me being the eccentric me that I am um, were actually symptoms. I was experiencing episodes. That was a very long explanation. So, well, I think I think it deserves it, and, and you know, for for the audience uh, listening at home too, I think I think bipolar disorder until recently was more commonly known as manic depressive disorder. Correct? Yes. And that, correct. That's that, that's sort of the new, or maybe that's the clinical. And I'm not I'm not sure why the name changed, but if it sounds like man, you know uh, manic depressive disorder, the answer is that well, yeah, because it is. So uh, you know, I watched your video and you talked about. You, you, you described a time, which I guess is 15, 16 years ago, when you, when you kind of came to a, a crisis point effectively where you sought specific medical attention. And, and I, I want to come to that. But before I, get, before I get to that particular moment, I'm curious, it's before you got to that moment, were, were, was there a gradual kind of uh, – kind of trail of breadcrumbs, if you will, of incre- say increasingly frequent or severe symptoms that, that led you to that point where you said, man, this just is, this is not, this is not right. This is not what most human beings have to go through. Or as is the case with something like schizophrenia, did one day all of a sudden or in a very short period of time, you simply became bipolar. What, does it work one of the two ways? Did you have a different, did you have one of those two experiences? I, I can't speak for the, you know, my my peers, but I can tell you for me, I had no idea that anything was wrong with me. Yeah. Because that, you know, that that period of time of three days where I stayed up and cleaned my my loft. I mean, that was I think that was back in two thousand and four, and I wasn't diagnosed until. January, towards the end of January of 2005. And the reason why I know this is because it, it, it was, it was a, a, and I talk about this in my, in my TED talk, it, it, it was an evening I was watching Jeopardy and then I was crying um, whilst watching Jeopardy, which is not something that you would normally do. Now I didn't think very much of it um, actually, which is kind of strange in and of itself now in hindsight, and the next day going into work, um, I found myself, you know, it, essentially just staring at a document for a very long time. It didn't seem like a very long time, but it turned out to be a very long time. Um, and then realizing that I wasn't processing any of the words that I was looking at. And and that was when it, 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 it was like a stroke of panic. 
was a surge of panic um, where I just said, I mean something was wrong. I didn't know what was wrong. So I called my my regular doctor and it, it was an emergency. Uh, I called him and I, and I explained what had happened. Didn't explain the night before and the crime, but I just explained to him that I, I really couldn't understand anything that I was reading. Um, he, he was clearly concerned and he gave me the names of three doctors and phone numbers. Now that in and of itself was a little strange because I could, I could write numbers and read numbers, but I couldn't really write the names of the doctors and read it back to myself. It's, I, I don't really know how to explain that. So I had to remember so I, I essentially just remembered the first name and wrote down the first number hmm. because that's all that I could process at the time. And so I was, cons- I, you know, I, I was very fortunate. Now I called that particular doctor, that psychiatrist. Now he couldn't see me for a month and a half. I mean, it was, it, you know, that kind of tells you 2005, our, our healthcare system is, uh, was just not geared toward helping people with mental health challenges. So unless, of course, um, had I said to my doctor that I thought about killing myself, I had thoughts of self-harm, that would have been a whole different ball of wax. Right. You had to move to the front of the line at that point. Pretty much. And actually, there's another story about that. I'll I'll explain that in a second. So um, so I basically couldn't, you know, there wasn't a, a... there wasn't a slot in time for six weeks. I made the appointment, um, wrote down a date, and uh, and then I was very fortunate because a few days later, um, the office called me, the doctor's office called me and said, hey, you know, we have cancellation. Would you like to come in? Are you available to come in? And I did. So that was super fortunate for me because... Um, at that point in time, I was starting to hallucinate. Hmm. Um, and I didn't know, I, I knew I was hallucinating because there's no way that there was, that I was hanging off of the rafters in my loft, you know, with a noose around my neck. I knew that wasn't happening. So I knew I was hallucinating. Um, so that's, that began my journey um, that, you know, till today. So that, that was how it all began for so when you were first diagnosed, did, did, how did you, I mean, how, did you feel that you had to hide your condition? Did you feel like you sort of had to tell the whole world? Did it not make an impact if you felt like, ah, oh, it's just like being told I have arthritis? How did you kind of emotionally react to that? Well, so you have to think, um, you have to remember, this is 2005, before right. people could talk about these things, yep. um, before it was normal, um, you know, before, I mean, ADHD in your kid was something to be ashamed of, um, still, at the time, or, you know, people would talk about their their kids in questions, like, oh, you know, my, my child has autism, or it, it's just none of this was okay to talk about. Um, and and so my I'm thinking about you know becoming an evangelist or you know raising awareness. I wasn't. I was just. I had no idea. First of all, what this is all about. Um, I went out and well. First of all, I 
wasn't diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I was, okay. I was diagnosed. My original diagnosis was schizophrenia. Huh. Which, you know, I mean, it's, it, there are similarities in symptoms. I mean, the fact that I was seeing myself hanging from the rafters and I was hearing voices. I mean, that is classic schizophrenia symptoms. Um, and, and so, but, but so I, I was diagnosed that way and, um, you know, I was prescribed medication for that. And a- along with going into talk therapy with my psychiatrist, and he also recommended that I go to a support group on a regular basis. Um, so I really, I didn't know that it was a lifelong condition that there is no cure. I mean, I had no clue. And it was one of those, like, I thought, all right, so if I take my meds, I do all the things that he, that my doctor wanted me to do, um, I'm going to be okay. Uh, All of this will stop. And I can just move on. And so this is 2005, and I did. And, And then for the longest time, I just assumed that I'd be fine. Taking the meds. Now, we did find out six weeks later or two months later that you know the the um, the schizophrenia diagnosis was incorrect. It was bipolar disorder because my um, my hallucinations receded once I was putting into place some of the sleep hygiene, is the official term. You know, the um, like not taking the television out of your bedroom. By the way, you can you cannot should not no one should be watching television and going to sleep. It's really bad for you. Um, I can't tell you the science behind it. Um, it was explained to me, I forget, but it's really bad. And so just, pra- just practicing good sleep hygiene, getting eight hours of sleep, um, ensuring that it's really deep REM, restful sleep. Those were those were measures that I took. And, you know, after, when I went back, my six-week visit, um, it, it was hallucinations that gone away. Um, some of the other symptoms were still persisted, and we he was able to give me a, a correct diagnosis of bipolar disorder, and then we went from there. So I was in no way thinking about telling people. It, it was more about getting well. How do I get well? How do I ensure that I can process, cognitively process, reading words? Um, I'm a knowledge worker. It's what I do for a living. Um, I, I'm a writer. <laughs> I, I, I tell stories. Um, I create messaging. I help, I help entrepreneurs with their positioning. And if I'm unable to, to, have, to be on my game from a cognitive function point of view, then I don't have a way to be self-sufficient. And so that, I mean, you know, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, you first have to take care of your bare essentials. And because I was living on my own, my family is, was, you know, is still 10,000 miles away. I essentially was my own person, my own provider, and I had to take care of myself. So it, that was the sole focus. Um, I have to tell you that this this erroneous notion that bipolar could be cured and after 
a period of time, I could just go back to doing all the things that I used to do that may not necessarily have been good for me, um, was a really bad thing and catastrophic because I had a relapse in a really severe episode of 15 months, uh, starting February ish of 2008. Mm. And I, and I didn't come out of it till July, August of 2009. And you know, that, that's something I think is very un, underappreciated, maybe unappreciated about, about mental illness is that, and again, I'm not a doctor either. But I, I'm not aware of any mental illness that is considered curable, right? I've never heard a psychiatrist say, I cured somebody of X or Y. It's, it's all about right now with current state-of-the-art science, it's all about treatment and management, right? And, but, it, you know, it, it, again, unless, unless there's a radical shift in technology, you know, it ain't going away. And, and if, if you're afflicted in, in some way like that, then it's just going to be your companion. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's amazing. We know we have gone so far or come so far in terms of technological advancements, uh, advancements in all kinds of areas, but scientists are still somewhat mystified by the brain and how it works. Yep. Um, and it, it, I mean, they do know that, uh, it's a chemical imbalance. It is truly a chemical imbalance. They're not entirely sure what causes it altogether. They know that there is, um, it, it could, some types of bipolar disorder and there are four types. Uh, some types are uh, triggered by damage to the hippocampus part of the brain. Um some of it is, um, you know, it has to do with the neurotransmitters not not firing the right way. Um, so there, there are like, there's not a lot of clarity. Um, and and then of course there's environmental factors as well. Um, that there there are theories that it's genetics. Actually, it's not a theory. They, they've done experiments and they've seen with twins, and they've seen that um, mood disorders there's a genetic underpinning to those to, to mood disorders, and um, and uh, environmental factors like stress or death in the family uh, or substance abuse. Those things, those factors could trigger symptoms. So, yeah, so I want to I kind of seize on that a little bit, grab a hold of that for a little bit, because you mentioned in your video that you had to implement a certain rule because there's, certain, there's one certain work trigger that you highlighted. So I was wondering if you could talk <laughs> about that and, and, and has, it, has it worked? Yeah, you are referring, Mike, to the no asshole rule. I am indeed. Um, and thanks for coming on the podcast anyway. I hope you're all right. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I think so. So there in, in, bipolar, in mood disorders, there's like for me, there are stressors and there are triggers. Okay. So stressors are conditions that, that make it very, very, um, that, that kind of exacerbate that that gives gives me a heightened sense of stress and stressors, which then triggers a certain emotion. Triggers are literally like 
for me, I, I can't speak for the rest of my peers here, but for me, there are certain behaviors, certain personality types, and sometimes in, in some cases, certain, um, certain phrases that trigger me, uh, to anger, to, mm. to, to behave in a certain way that I have no control over. And they also trigger or, or, or they trigger such an overwhelming sense of doubt and fear and, and shame even that I have no control over. It's completely irrational, but I have, and I have no control over it. And so the no asshole rule has everything to do with a certain kind of personality that unfortunately um, is quite persistent in the technology, I dare say, industry. There's, yeah, there's there's no shortage of assholes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, and, and they and we and we make more. Uh, well, so it, it. So when I say asshole, what I mean is um, that there are certain traits, like you know, people people who demand always demand more, and they move the goalpost. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we've all experienced coworkers or managers like that who don't, they don't, they, they demand without ever providing positive reinforcement. And when a certain goal had been attained, instead of taking a moment to, to acknowledge, appreciate, they move the goalpost just a little bit further. And for me, that's the kind of, that sort of personality is a trigger for me. Um, and, and so I, I, I've tried very, very hard to steer away from working with people like that. Um, or, and in many cases, I've, I've had to develop coping mechanisms. So you'll hear that a lot if you talk to, you know, if you come to my group support session, um, we do, we talk about coping mechanisms. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do. And, and you know, just, just techniques to, to, um, to moderate the impact of certain types of behavior that trigger us. Uh, because in many cases in the workplace, you can't always remove yourself from personalities like that. You just have to find ways of reducing and minimizing the exposure to personalities like that. So I'd like to talk about that because I I think that's, I think that's a very important subject and starts to intersect with the, with the business part of it, if you will. And, and, and and what I'd like to, to ask about that, first of all, is this, is that given that you know, these things about yourself, how, how do you do, do you entirely take it upon yourself to minimize your exposure to these triggers or do you have do you kind of try to work with the people that that you're involved with and say hey look you know i i, I sort of have this thing going on and you know these four things are really not good and and I'd like to try to avoid those in this environment as much as possible. Can you have conversations like that? Am I just sort of off the reservation? If I care enough about the person and respect the person enough, quite honestly, Mike, yeah. I'll take the trouble to do that. 
Okay. Because honestly, I, let me give you an analogy and perhaps this will become clear. If, if someone is being abusive or discriminatory toward me, it is not my responsibility to tell them that they are and to teach them some other way. I don't think it's my responsibility and I don't want to carry that burden. That's me personally. Now, I know other people would. Um, however, if I care and I respect the person enough to want to continue to have a relationship with that person, an ongoing, sustainable relationship with that person, then I would because I want a sustainable, ongoing relationship. Then the 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 amount of investment that I would have to make warrants that you know it, it the outcome warrants the investment because it's a big investment it is very sure. difficult um so first of all that person has to have some semblance of empathy yeah one you don't have that it's a non-starter right correct one of the primary reasons why assholes are assholes Mike is because they lack empathy and self-awareness and they you know and I I have in my in my years have come to the conclusion that some people just can't help themselves. And who am I to go help them stop being an asshole? So I I'm I'm just I mean, you know, I'm just going to work with them as best as the situation calls for to get the job done, to accomplish the goal, and move on. That's how I cope. That's my coping mechanism. There is too much energy. It would take too much energy for me to manage my disorder and try and change these people. It is the situation would be quite different if a person is appears is exhibiting these behavioral traits, these less than desirable behavior traits, but has some semblance of empathy. They just don't know it. Okay, they don't know what they're doing, but if they did, if I thought that if they did know what they were doing, it's and it's the impact of their behavior on others that they would consider a different way. If I even detected that and I wanted a sustained relationship with these people, I would make the investment. And yes, I would absolutely say, look, and I would train it from the standpoint of I have a mood disorder. Because <laughs> that too is it's a very self-centric thing, and I, that's just not my style. I would say from the standpoint of, look, this is, these, when you say these kinds of things in this sort of a situation, you may not mean it this way, but let me tell you how it's being perceived. Okay. And if this is not the way you want it to be perceived, then let's find a better way of articulating your thoughts. Okay, and that's how I would do it. So, so beyond beyond this particular approach, which is a very sort of uh, let's call it individualized or even a non-scalable approach, right? Because that's yes. to be focused one person at a time. Yes, and I think that's part of where the ROI equation comes in that you're describing. Are, are there other are there other things that you need to do to kind of protect yourself? For example, I would imagine because you said that a good sleep schedule is essential. 
to managing your condition, right? So that, to me, that says it would be very difficult for you to be in a culture that thrives on the all-nighter, right? That's just not, it sounds like that's something that could be not only suboptimal, but potentially even dangerous for you. Yes. Um, and, and actually, the when I, when I violate my no asshole rule and I allow myself to be consumed um, by a, a, you know, let's work an all-nighter type of culture, is when I get into trouble, I, I literally get myself very sick. Mm. And, and so, yes, there's, there's, there's a measure of protection that I have to put around myself boundaries. So yep. this is where boundaries come in. And, you know, people with no bi- without the bipolar disorder have boundaries. So now what is really interesting, I think, um, in my situation um, that I think is worth noting for your listeners who may find themselves in a similar situation is I am naturally a high performance, hard charging individual. Agreed. That is my nature. Yep. I've um, seen it. <laughs> unfortunately, my nature is hurtful to my condition. So, so I have to fight my default and learn new, a new default. Um, and so what I've done is learning a new default is, well, perhaps, you know, old dogs can't learn new tricks, as the saying goes. Uh, learning a new, new default maybe has proven to be too difficult. So what I've done is I've, I've created extensions <laughs> to the default. Okay. So, you know, it's like home improvement. I've, I've added extensions and caveats to the default where, yes, when it is absolutely necessary, I will work the 80 hour week, but I will not work the 80 hour week. Well, I, I would work it for a week, maybe two at most. And then I have to go back to a 40, 50 hour week, which is a normal week yep. for me. And, um, or I take a mental health day. You, you hear people say that all the time where, where, you know, you take a Friday and you just, switch it off. Now I have learned as a coping mechanism to turn off my phone and go off with one day out of every weekend. Hmm. So, you know, you have a Saturday, you have Sunday. So I, I either pick a Saturday or Sunday, usually it's a Sunday where I completely go off grid and I do not check phone, emails, nothing. So that, you know, it's kind of like a, an electronic detox, digital yeah. detox. Well, you know, I mean, a lot of the things you're describing sound like they're they're probably pretty useful for people that aren't fighting bipolar disorder. Frankly, yes. Um, I, I I can tell you something. I, I've started to become very mindful of is my own sleep schedule because it when you can when you can operate in short sleep, it's it's a blessing and a curse because I mean it, it's a blessing because it allows you to to do more. For me, Parkinson's law just takes over. All, all it does, it allows me to outwork my mistakes. <laughs> so, um, and, and that's not really an optimal place to be anyway. So, you know, the way you describe, you know, you, you, you describe these sort of parameters in a way that I, I think are consistent with kind of best practices for mental maintenance anyway. Indeed. Uh, so many of, many of the, the measures that I've taken, anyone and everyone really 
to take is, you know, regardless what sort of a work pace they're, they're on, it really doesn't matter. I mean, so I'll, I'll be very specific. If you have a television in your bedroom, remove it. This is probably the hardest one for most for most people because uh, a lot of people I know seem to have televisions in their bedrooms. It's terrible. Um, if you if you um, eight hours of sleep. Now some people need eight. I need six hours of sleep. Yep. Six good hours of sleep is sufficient for me. It's the quality of sleep more than the quantity of sleep. Um. Doing something so for me, for me to process uh, process problems, I need to be doing something else. So this is the other thing about um, corporate America is that it's not always forgiving about extracurricular activities. Um, there are some cultures that don't they they don't condone a person, an employee having nonprofit work or volunteer work, anything like that. Where you know they they want you and all of you and you know all of your time, right? Uh, that does not. So I stay away from cultures like that because that is not how I operate optimally. My optimal mode is the ability to problem solve at work, but I'm problem solving whilst I'm doing other things, other activities that are not work related, like organizing Tex Atlanta. That actually helps. It's invigorating. It, it's a it's a very renewing process of organizing that endeavor, and it helps me process the other kind of work problems that I have, the revenue generating problems yeah. that that I have to you know that I'm helping to overcome and add value to. That is my mode. So I I think people have to find what works for them. This is, I'm describing what absolutely works for me in this instance. The whole sleep hygiene thing, absolutely, that works for everybody. That applies to everybody. The hours, that's individualized. Um, everyone has a sweet spot. And then finally, um, just, gosh, um, a lot of what happens that people don't, that may not be obvious is that people with bipolar disorder, when there is an episode and there's a long, a true multi-week, multi-month episode of depression, what it does is it also completely obliterates your self-confidence. And one of the ways to rebuild self-confidence is to do volunteer work. Hmm. So one of my, so when I went when I experienced the very long episode from February 2008 to 2009, uh, July, August, was the way I slowly came back to the world, so to speak, was beyond the talk therapy, beyond the medication, beyond the group support sessions every two, uh, every two weeks, every month, um, I also began... To volunteer at uh, actually St. Vincent de Paul in this case. And um, where I just, something so, as simple as stocking shelves at the food bank. <laughs> at the food okay. bank. You know, so it was um, rebuilding a sense of confidence is really, really important in the recovery process as well. And and making and engaging in activities that reinforce your sense of self 
when when you're not in an episode, when when things are when when things are being managed, when when your conditions being managed, is also very important. So uh, one question I want to make sure to get to is is and and I'm I'm curious about this for myself because I, I you know as a as a manager as, as a leader I may encounter this and that is if somebody were if somebody that um, were in my charge were to approach me and sort of close the door and just say hey look I've got you know I've got this this issue I've got this issue of bipolar disorder um, and I just want to let you know about it because some things you may not expect to happen might happen or I may have specific needs where to help manage it. What's the best way for me to react to that? Oh. Should I react to it? Wow. Should I hand them off to HR? Should I, I mean, you know, how, how can I engage constructively in that conversation? Wow. That's a, that's a tough one, Mike, because you're, you're now wandering, you're wandering into labor laws and HR and all the, all of that. That's a tough you know, one. So I'll tell you, um, how I've reacted in the past to team members who've come to me to say, you know, who have, whose work performance had, had, you know, had visibly, obviously fallen off. And I've had this conversation. It was, you know, I initiated a conversation and then they tell me that there was this, there have been a series of deaths in the family and they were just not feeling well and so on and so forth. So, so first of all, regardless of what your HR policy is about this, um, I think it's important to just listen. <clears throat> you know, sometimes the best action is no action. And sometimes, like, uh, the person that may just want to be heard. Um, well, people don't yeah. consider that. I mean, th- there may not be an action necessary. The person, you just want, they just want to be heard. Because one of the it's very lonely when you're when you're experiencing symptoms. You feel like you're the only one in the world feeling it when it's not true, but your brain is telling you that you're the only one. So just being a, an ear and not being, not committing to anything, not saying anything, and just understanding and showing kindness and empathy. That sometimes can be enough. I really like that. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it reminds me actually of a, of a, of a quote from Art of War that, that suggests that uh, one of the hardest things to do, but the best thing to do is simply nothing. I'm paraphrasing. It's really the hardest, one of the hardest things to do in battle is wait. But it, you know, it, it translates very well there that sometimes the best thing to do is just, is just nothing. And for somebody like me who prefers to be proactive and, and, and frankly would like to help, somebody comes to me with something like that, my first instinct is, is how can I help? Even though I am, I am patently unqualified to help somebody, right? I don't, I don't have that condition. I don't have medical training. You know, I, I, re- I read what I read on the internet, half of which is probably wrong. But I think, I think that's a really good I think that's a really good piece of advice. I really do. It's and and it's it's surprisingly hard. Yes, it is. Um, so, listening, being heard, is oftentimes the best the best answer for 
the person across the table who is sharing something that is very difficult for them to share. Making sure that they feel heard is possibly the best gift that you can give them as a manager. Um, now, I think though, if the situation would be different if you are sensing that they could possibly hurt themselves. Right. They could be in that state. Now, you never know. Okay, so first of all, you never know. Yep. But if you even have a glimmer of that, then it's time to have a conversation with your HR group to just to 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 better understand all the different angles. Um we're talking with Jackie Chu and the topic is should I be open about my mental illness? And um you, you know that and that conversation is adjacent to something that that I started a conversation about in our in my, our company about really about three years ago, not long after I joined actually. And this is in the wake of the Ohio State scandal where one coach was abusing his wife and other coaches knew and apparently didn't do anything, certainly not enough to kind of intervene in that. And the question I question I asked and still ask, because there's really no great answer, is, you know, as an, as an employer, as a leader, if I hear something, something like that in my own, in my firm, right, what are my obligations, both ethical and legal? What are my constraints, both ethical and legal? And I think what you just described is actually quite adjacent to that. Um, so uh, we, we need to wrap up here. We, we could do this for a lot longer. Um, but, uh, you know, we have limited time and I want to be respectful the rest of your day, but I, I, I am curious about, about one thing, you know, in the 15, 16 years that, that, that you've struggled with this and have, uh, have become an advocate for awareness. Do you think that as a society, we've gotten better at acknowledging the importance, severity, and impact of mental illness? Unequivocally, yes. And it's been accelerated by the onset of COVID. Um, ironically, COVID has affected such a large swath of the population in terms of this, the isolation, the social distancing and isolation that have you know, having such a profound impact on a person's psyche and for many people that it has given those of us who were diagnosed before, who have diagnosed conditions, it's given us bigger, like a broader audience. There's more empathy. There's less likelihood of saying, of the other person saying, oh, it's all in your head. <laughs> right. And, or What's less thing to say. Well, people say it. Um, or, um, there's no shortage or, of stupid things for people to say, but go on. There, there you go. Um, or, or the the this this notion that you know, if you take a pill, if you take a series of pills, and you go to your doctor, you be fine. Um, because it's you know, so the pandemic has affected so many people in so many different ways that there's a really good chance if you if you talk to your neighbor. They know someone in their family or they know someone, you know, in their second ring of peers or friends uh, and associates who've been affected uh, by the pandemic from a mental health point of view. So my point is mental health issues are more prevalent as a result of the pandemic. Um, 
and therefore the 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 conversation around it is is just more mainstream. They, I mean, COVID has mainstream mental health and the challenges and the symptoms and the problems. And there's a there's a um, there's a distinct level volume of conversation that's happening on social media, on Clubhouse, uh, and on Twitter. I mean, even at TED, I, I was just, I, I spent the um, my lunchtime listening and watching a whole panel of uh, iconic TED speakers uh, as part of this thing that TED puts together. And Monica Lewinsky was there, and she's a huge advocate for mental health and normalizing the conversation around mental health. Um, you know, she shares my my vision and my wish that, gosh, I wish that it could be a dinner table conversation, just like diabetes, like talking about, you know, how's your dad's diabetes coming along? How's he managing it? You know, is he exercising? I wish we could talk about, you know, how's your brother's, you know, mental mood disorder coming along? Is he getting the sleep he needs? I mean, I would love to see that happen. And I think we are closer. We're not there, but we're closer because of the pandemic. I think that's a great place to to put a pin in this and 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 wrap it up, and maybe we'll do a, a part two at some point. I, you know, I only got through about half the questions, but that's fine. Uh, How can people contact you for more information about uh, this? Maybe it's just to share their journey or get your advice. Sure. Um, so I'm active on Facebook. It's just Jackie Chu. I'm also active on LinkedIn, also Jackie Chu, and I have a website, JackieChu.com. Yep, as you can tell, Jackie is uh, Jackie is not an introvert. She is not hard to find, and uh, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Jackie so much for joining us and sharing her expertise with us. And on a side note, frankly, just for having the courage to 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 be to be this advocate, I am confident that it has helped a lot of people over the way, and I'm equally confident it's going to help at least a few listeners to this program. Um, we'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Bradyware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. Thank you.